I want to start off today's teaching by telling you guys a story, because we all have stories, right? This story is about a young teenage girl who we're going to call Elle. Now, Elle grew up in one of two neighboring kingdoms. And all throughout Elle's childhood, all she desired was to go visit this other kingdom. That's all she wanted to do, was to go there and meet these other people to experience this other kingdom. But unfortunately, she could not do that. You see, contact between the people of El's kingdom and the citizens of this neighboring kingdom were forbidden. They couldn't speak to each other. They couldn't go visit. Now, El had friends and family that loved her where she was, but again, that wasn't enough. She wanted to go experience the culture, meet the people of this other kingdom, maybe even live there if she enjoyed it so much. She had lots of material possessions. She had plenty of wealth. She had all sorts of different gadgets. She even had really a, a plethora of different gizmos, but that, that wasn't what she was interested in. She wanted to go there for herself. And one day she finally decides, I'm going to do that. I'm going to break the rules. I'm going to go. But in order to do that, she had to change her appearance. You see, the people of the two neighboring kingdoms didn't exactly resemble. And so she wouldn't fit in. And so she goes through with it. She changes her appearance. She goes and she visits this other kingdom. And while she's there, she actually meets a nice young man and falls in love with him. And despite her family's initial disapproval and all the haters, Elle eventually overcomes all of the obstacles and is able to marry this nice young man and live in this other kingdom that she always dreamed of going to. A true happily ever after, a true fairy tale ending. And that's because, of course, that is a fairy tale. If you didn't already catch on, the story that I just recounted to you was, of course, the story of the Little Mermaid. But what if I told you that's not how the original story ended? We love the Disney version. Like, we love flipping on Disney Plus and, and watching that and seeing Elle and Prince Eric live happily ever after. It's great. Uh, we remember it from when we were kids. But actually, the original story was written a long time ago, back in the 1800s. And the ending of that story isn't quite as glamorous. You see, in that story, mermaids lived to be 300 years old. But when they would die, they would simply turn into sea foam and cease to exist. Humans, on the other hand, while they lived a much shorter lifespan, 50, 60 years, they had a soul. And so after they died, their soul would go to heaven and they would continue to live on. And so upon finding out, this mermaid decides, hey, I want a soul of my own. I don't just want to turn into sea foam. Who would want that? And so she becomes a human. She goes onto land in search for true love and she finds the young prince and she falls in love with him but he does not fall in love with her. In fact, he falls in love with another young woman, and he marries her. And the end of the story finds the mermaid on a boat, staring at the newlywed couple, the prince who she wanted to love and marry, and his wife, that was not her. And so realizing that she would not get what she wanted, she throws herself overboard, and upon hitting the water, she turns into sea foam. That's not the ending that we know and love, is it? And Disney would never dream of making a movie about that. And if they did, I know I wouldn't watch it. I don't know about y'all. But that's because we as humans, we don't like suffering, right? We don't like 
the idea that someone doesn't get their happily ever after, not just in movies and entertainment, but in real life. We want people to have their fairy tale ending. And the thought that somebody would just go through life suffering and then end and die, we don't like that. That's not an attractive idea to us. Today, though, I want to explore that idea some. What does the Bible teach us about the happy fairy tale endings that we all love and that we would say, hey, yeah, I, I, I want one of those? Can we expect those from God? Are they promised to us? Do our expectations line up with Scripture? Well, in order to begin to answer that question today, we're going to take a look at the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, if you're not familiar with the book, follows the life, the message, the ministry of the prophet. Jeremiah was called to speak to the nation of Judah. You see, Judah had for years now, decades now, turned over to wickedness and idolatry. But they believed that because they were God's chosen people, everything would be fine. They could act how they wanted because they were the Israelites. God picked them. And of course, that was not the case. God says, you guys have practiced wickedness. You've forsaken my commands long enough. And so I'm going to judge you. He planned to use the Babylonian Empire to cast judgment upon the nation of Judah. But God, being the gracious God that he is, decided to give them a chance to repent. He calls Jeremiah. He sends him forth with the message, saying that judgment is coming, saying to repent, giving them a potential way out. We're going to pick up in chapter 1 in verse 4, where we see the calling of Jeremiah. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, that's okay. We have free Bibles right in the back, right next to the Connection Hub. Take one, use it for this service, take it home with you. We believe everyone should have access to the Word of God. But picking up in verse 4, we see the calling of Jeremiah from his point of view. Now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord, God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. I can't be your prophet. I can't deliver a message on your behalf. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And so this story starts off well enough. God has commissioned Jeremiah. He says, hey, be this prophet for me. Take this message out. And he assures him. He says, before you were even born, I picked you. Before the thought of you even existed in your parents' mind, I said, you are going to do this for me. And Jeremiah's measly argument about being too young is rebutted. God says, I don't care about your age. I've already picked you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to use you. So it's okay. And God even says in the final verse of the chapter that you'll have enemies, but they won't overcome you. In verse 19, he says, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. And these are the moments that we love. The prophet has been commissioned. He's ready to go out and he's ready to take the word. 
perhaps a little scared, perhaps a little nervous, but he believes God is with him. He's going to tell the people judgment's coming, repent. He's going to see them turn back to God. This is the good part. But as we continue reading, we actually see that everything doesn't play out that way. Jeremiah calls on the nation to remember God's past blessings. He points out how far they've strayed from their early devotion to the Lord. He actually compares their wickedness to harlotry. He says, you guys are acting like an unfaithful spouse. Why? And then he even says, you guys have already seen an example of what will happen, so why are you doing this? You see, in the times of King David and King Solomon, the nation of Israel was one strong, united nation. But after the kings, there was a civil war, and the nation split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom that kept the name Israel and the southern kingdom that took the name Judah, where Jeremiah now is. But at this point in time, the northern kingdom of Israel doesn't exist anymore. You see, they too had fallen into the trap of wickedness and idolatry, worshiping these false gods, these false deities. And so the Lord used, at that time, another world superpower, the Assyrian Empire, to wipe them off the map to judge them. And so Jeremiah says, guys, we've seen how this plays out. Remember Israel? Remember our, our brothers up there who turned over to wickedness? And look at, look at them. Look at what's happened. Do you want the same thing to happen here? Absolutely not. Repent. And yet, it doesn't happen. While we would love for the people to respond positively, for them to turn back to God, that's not what we read. In chapter 6, picking up in verse 10, we see Jeremiah expressing his frustration that no one will listen. We read, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Jeremiah is proclaiming the truth and yet he can't find anyone to listen. He's proclaiming the word of the Lord and yet there is no response. I remember one time when I was a young 10-year-old boy, I was still six feet tall, all I wanted was a Red Ryder BB gun. For eight months that year, until my birthday, I told my grandparents, I want a BB gun, I want a BB gun, I want a BB gun. That's all I wanted. I don't know if I used one at a friend's house or if I just saw a video of it on YouTube, but I was obsessed and I wanted one. And like any good grandparents, shout out to my grandparents who were in the crowd, they got me the BB gun that I wanted. For my birthday, I rip open, rip open the wrapping on my gift and ah, like there it is, Red Rider BB gun. And so I grab some scissors, I cut into the box, I pull it out, I go to run out the door, and my grandfather stops me. He's like, wait, wait, wait. Before you go out there and start shooting, I have to tell you some things. Uh, when you're walking around with your BB gun, point it at the ground. If it accidentally goes off, I don't want to get hit. You don't want to get hit. He says, when you're shooting, don't shoot with a car in the background or the house in the background. If someone's personal belongings are there, if someone paid money for it, don't shoot in that direction. So just typical gun safety stuff. But the last thing he told me, he said, Perry, don't ever stand too close to the you know, little tin soda cans that you'll be shooting. Because if you do, there's a chance that the pellet will hit the, uh, the soda can and bounce back and hit you. 
But like a typical 10-year-old boy, I figured that I knew more than my grandfather. And so there were times where I'd be getting a little close over the next couple of weeks, and he would see me, and he'd say, hey, Perry, you're a little too close. You may want to back up. And I would just brush off his words. And so one day, I was wrapping up, and I was going to pick up the can so it wouldn't be in the field. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to shoot it standing right in front of it. And so I point my little BB gun down, because what's going to happen? What that old man said, no. Pow. And sure enough, that little pellet flew out, hit that can, bounced right back and hit me. And it didn't send me to the hospital, but it did not feel good. (laughs) And it was all because I just ignored my grandfather's words of wisdom that at the time I didn't really think was much wisdom there. He was right. But that's what's happening to the people of Judah here. They are refusing to listen to the words and the warnings of Jeremiah. And while perhaps an indifferent response, just ignoring him would have been one thing, we actually see that their rejection of Jeremiah was taken to the extreme. Their rejection of him included anger, scorn, humiliation, and even violence. After one particular message from Jeremiah, a priest has him arrested, beaten, and thrown in the public stocks to endure humiliation. In chapter 36, we even find the king himself rejecting Jeremiah, scoffing at his words and attempting to arrest him and have him killed. So Jeremiah isn't exactly having uh, the most favorable circumstances. This isn't exactly the easiest life that he might have been hoping for, that he might have expected. And we might think, well, Jeremiah, he's a prophet of the Lord, right? He's been called by God, and so he can handle it. He's fine. Like, he's just head up, charging against it. He's cool. But we actually read uh, that that's not quite the case. Jeremiah is actually known as the weeping prophet. And this is because there are multiple chapters in his book that contain his personal prayers and personal confessions. And Jeremiah is pretty open and vulnerable in these chapters. And when we read them, when we take a look at them, we actually see that Jeremiah was engaged in a deep emotional struggle, not just with other people, but also with God. You see, the knowledge of Judah's future, the knowledge that they were going to be judged, that they needed to repent, but that they were refusing to, it weighed on Jeremiah's heart. And coupled with the mocking and the persecution and the rejection, Jeremiah actually questions God. Listen to what he says in chapter 20. We're going to pick up in chapter 20, verse 14. Listen to these words. Listen to Jeremiah being open here. The man of God, who we think would just be able to take this. He says, Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb? To see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame. Every day brought Jeremiah more trouble and more sorrow. Every time he speaks, the Lord's message is met with ridicule. He says, I spend my days in shame. He says, why was I born? Why did I come out of the womb? 
Perhaps that's been some of you before. Perhaps that's some of you right now. Perhaps you found yourself so drowned in the circumstances of life that you ask yourself, why? Why was I even born? Perhaps you find yourself like Jeremiah, calling out to God in the midst of pain and stress and rejection and fear and wondering why. Why me? Why now? Why this situation? Why for so long? Why have I tried for years to mend this family relationship and it just won't work? Why have why has financial problems plagued me for so long? And no matter how hard I try, I just can't seem to get out of debt. Why has anxiety and depression continued to weigh on me after night and night of tears and prayers? Why? At one point, Jeremiah states his problem by saying, Lord, I haven't done anything, but the whole land curses me. And then he asks God, why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? He says, it's been so long, God. I've been hurting for so long, yet the pain just doesn't end. It's unceasing. It just keeps going. Do you relate to that? Have you suffered continually to the point where you're saying, this, this is unceasing. It just won't end. And Jeremiah asks God if he will be a deceitful brook that's simply a, a brook or a spring that dries up in the summer, that can't be depended on for water. This is contrasted against an earlier statement in the book where God himself says that he's the spring of living water. And so Jeremiah is saying, really, God, what you said, is that true? Can I actually depend on you? Or are you just going to be like a deceitful brook, just letting me down in the moments where I most need you? For some of us, these are not unfamiliar questions. Some of us would say, yes, Perry, I'm also beginning to doubt the dependability of God. Perry, I'm also beginning to doubt the love of God. Perry, I've been hurting for so long. Just like Jeremiah, I would say that my pain is unceasing. Isn't it about time that God steps in? Because that's our mindset, right? If God truly loves us, then he's going to step in and he's going to change everything. And if he doesn't, then he's not actually dependable. If he doesn't take away my pain, he doesn't love me. If he doesn't answer after nights and nights of prayers, then something must be wrong with him. He must be like this deceitful brook that Jeremiah talks about. Let's keep examining Jeremiah's story, though, because if things are going to change, now's the time. This is the part in the fairy tales where the prince comes rushing in, or the fairy godmother appears, or the genie comes out of the lamp and grants the wish. At this point of the story, Jeremiah has just poured out his heart to God. He says, God, I'm suffering. It's been so long. Do something, please. And so here something has to change, right? For Jeremiah's story to end on the good, positive note that we expect for the Lord's people. Well, it's not 
what we read. In chapters 37 to 38, we see the leaders of Judah asking Jeremiah, what do we do? The nation of Babylon has finally come. They've surrounded our city. What are we supposed to do? Time's running out, Jeremiah. And he says, hey, you need to submit. At this point, you're not going to win a war against Babylon, but submit to them, and at least you'll be spared. The king, (laughs) he laughs at Jeremiah. He says, absolutely not. The rejection continues. He throws Jeremiah in prison. And Jeremiah stays in prison until the Babylonians successfully breach the walls of Jerusalem. And so after decades of Jeremiah preaching, telling the people to repent, while at the same time crying out to God in the midst of pain and hurt and suffering, after decades of that, he has to watch as Jerusalem is raised to the ground. His home destroyed. This isn't how it's supposed to end. Where was the Lord's intervention? Jeremiah was distraught, and we read his emotional pleas, the heartache he had to go through. Wasn't God supposed to remove all that? Church, the fact is that God doesn't promise us an escape from these things. The stress, persecution, and imprisonment, those words really apply to Jeremiah. Maybe for us, we could use some different words depression, anxiety, financial problems, fear, doubt, stress, relationship issues, family tension, abandonment, isolation, heartache, the list goes on and on. And when we read scripture, we don't see God promise us a break. Nowhere in the Bible do we see God say, I promise that if you pray enough, I will come and I'll remove all your struggles. As Christians, we sometimes have this idea that God is just going to step in and change everything. And now we'll we'll admit that hard times come sometimes. That's the right Christian thing to say. That's what we'll say from the pulpit. Sometimes we go through challenges. God doesn't promise us an easy life. But after weeks and months of crying out to God with no response, we begin to ask the question, where are you? I mean, sure, life may not be completely free of problems. It may not be perfect, but there's got to be a limit, right? One year of financial insecurity has got to be the limit. Two years of being single, longing for a relationship has to be the limit, right? Three years of mental struggles, depression, anxiety, that has to be the limit, right? There's got to be some point where God will step in a whole answer, Right? except that's not what we're told. We want the fairy tale happy ending. We want the amazing God stepped in and completely changed everything and took away all the suffering, and yet we're not promised it. We don't always get it, and we see this in the life of Jeremiah. He's a man who remains faithful, and he consistently cries out, and yet there's no deliverance from his circumstances. In fact, if you thought that his story was bad so far, it's actually not even done. You see, after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, they begin to exile the inhabitants. They cart off the people of Judah. But they leave behind some. Jeremiah is one of those people. And they put a governor in charge. And some of the, the remnant that stayed behind, they come to Jeremiah and they say, Jeremiah, what are we supposed to do now? And he says, it's the same thing. Submit. Just submit and 
at least live out the rest of your days in peace. And of course, the rejection continues. There's a few radicals who kill the governor, and so that they don't get in trouble, they flee to Egypt, but they take Jeremiah with them. So Jeremiah is kidnapped. After everything that's already happened, his home destroyed, his friends and family killed, people being carted off, he's then forcibly taken to another land where then he just dies. Sounds like this could fit right in with that dark and depressing ending of the original Little Mermaid, right? And so what is to be said in response to this? When the situations aren't changing, when the suffering is still continuing, after we've prayed, when it's looking like God's not going to step in and change things how we want to see, when the spring of living water is looking like a deceitful brook, what's to be said? Because from what you're saying, Perry, it sounds a little bleak, looks a little hopeless. Well, go ahead and flip over to Romans 8 with me. We're going to take a look at some of Paul's words. And Paul's actually a man who knew a thing or two about suffering, from shipwrecks to beatings to imprisonment to, at one point, even being blind. I mean, he, he really went through it. And so in Romans 8, we're going to pick up in verse 35, we see that Paul has just been talking about suffering. He says that sin has brought bondage and corruption to the world, to all of creation, including us. And he says, so yeah, we, we do suffer, we do hurt, we do have pain. That's the world we live in. But then he asks this question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, these are the kinds of things that will try to separate us from the love of Christ, that is to, to shake our confidence in it, to tempt us to doubt and forsake the love of Christ. And he lists plenty, a tribulation and distress. So all the external situations that bring suffering and the internal mental struggles that we have to face, persecution, suffering specifically because of our faith, famine and nakedness, the lack of what we need, destitution, danger, sword, even violence. And he quotes a psalm saying that people are being killed for you. Definitely in Paul's day and age, in our time, not so much in America, but around the world, people are being put to death for their faith. And so Paul says, these are the kinds of things that make our hope waver, that make our trust waver. These are the kinds of sufferings that we pray for deliverance from. But if we're not delivered, if we still have to keep facing it, if we keep having to go through it, can these things separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives his answer in verse 37. No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of your circumstances, none of your sufferings, none of the things that happen in life, and not even death itself, can separate you from the love of Christ. And just in case you have another thought, what about this? Paul adds in nothing in all of creation. 
nothing. This is a love that was demonstrated to us by pure self-sacrifice, by a man who cried, if there's any other way, let's do that instead. But who still chose to die for you anyways. This is a love that cannot be separated from you, that cannot be taken from you, that cannot be changed, that cannot be altered, that doesn't lessen or end. When I was in elementary school English class, uh, they taught us all sorts of rules regarding grammar and punctuation and spelling. And one of the rules that they taught us was that I always comes before E when you're spelling a word. Always. Like hard and fast. There's no exception to this rule except when it's after C. But other than that, I comes before E. And they even had like a little uh, rhyme for it, I before E except after C. And so little like fourth grade me, was convinced that was the case. And when I got to middle school and opened up a book and saw the word height, it blew my mind. I was like, that's wrong, teacher, the author's wrong. And she was like, no, Perry, you're just not smart. Completely shook me to the core because I was taught that that's a hard and fast rule. Like it's always going to be the case, and yet it wasn't. But guys, the love of Christ isn't like those phony rules they teach you in elementary they're never going to change. You're never going to grow up and get to an age where you suddenly realize, oh, man, Paul had it wrong. God doesn't love me. That will never happen. I cannot stand here this morning and tell any of you listening that God will stop your sufferings if you pray enough or follow him or, or believe. That would simply be a lie. And I can't give you the three-step practical guide to escaping your problems. And perhaps... Some of you need to hear that. Perhaps there are some who need to hear that the gospel doesn't promise that because your expectations have been a little off. But I would wager that for a lot more of us, we already know that that's the truth because of what's happening in our lives, because of the situations we face, because of the sufferings we go through. And maybe if you say, yeah, that's sort of, that's me today. This message is aimed at you because in a world that can continually cause us to feel hopeless and unloved. Paul says, no, you are loved. And so you do have hope. Our experiences with the sufferings of this world can sometimes steal our happiness, but they can't touch the cross. They can't negate the love that God has shown for you in sending his son to die in your place. Here at Venture, we actually have uh, this little saying, you might have heard it before, that we are God-chasing grace-shaped love agents. And I really love that first part, this idea that we are chasing God with all that we are. We are running after him. But we're not just God chasing. We are also God chased, as in God chased after us. God pursued us relentlessly, even to the point of sending his son to die for us so that we could have a future with him, an eternal future with him. And so God, uh, Paul says, in light of this, in light of God's infinite love for us, and in light of what he's promised us for the future, our struggles don't even compare. He writes this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. When you Consider what Christ did for you on the cross in addition to all the things that he's promised you for the future. The things that we face now, 
can't even hold a candle to that. So, no, God may not remove all of our sufferings. He may not give us that perfect happily ever after that we may really look forward to, that we really want. But the unending love of Christ that can never be separated from us shatters any power that our suffering has over us. And in remembering that and in looking towards the future with hope, then we have a greater treasure than any of all the gadgets and gizmos that this world could ever offer us. Every single week, as the message begins to wrap up, Pastor Chris likes to give us a challenge, something to take out and do through the following week. Well, today, I wanted to share a truth with you guys that hopefully, if you don't already, you can begin to believe. And so my challenge is a little bit different because it's not quite everyday actions that you would do towards other people. I simply want to challenge you to read eight verses every single morning when you wake up. They're actually Lamentations 3, verse 17 to 24. It'll take all of two minutes. But as I end, I'm going to go ahead and read these verses to you. And these verses are actually written by the prophet Jeremiah, somebody that I'm pretty familiar with, right? Someone who suffered his whole life and then who was not delivered, who seemed to lose all hope when the Lord said, or when he asked the Lord to change things, to deliver him, and, and didn't happen. Who just got kidnapped and then died at the end. This is what he says. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And so I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wonderings, the wormwood and the gall? That's a fancy way of saying bitterness. So remember my affliction and my bitterness? My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let's pray.